Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiani Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 28th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I decided to continue the presentation of Clifton Emmerheiser's 24 special notices to all who deny two seed line for just one more week, this week, and next week I plan to resume our ongoing presentations of the Epistles of Paul with First Timothy. Following that, we shall return to a continuation of this series again in the near future as we plan to travel later this spring. But before we begin with Clifton's essay, I want to take a short digression. I'm going to try to take at least one of these digressions throughout each episode of this series as they give me an opportunity to discuss certain things which I do not frequently have a good context to discuss. I am certain Clifton would not mind that I do this. Not everyone who calls themselves Two Seed Line is our friend or a friend of truth. And not all of those who neglect to use the label are our enemies. Last week, I had discussed a paragraph from a book written by Joseph November, who writes and plays at being a Christian identity pastor under the pseudonym of Eli James. Now I am going to discuss one aspect of a paper he wrote over five years ago, entitled, Crumbs. In that paper, Eli, as I will reluctantly call him, referred to Clifton Emmerheiser and I as exterminationists, using this term to describe our exposition of scripture, just as if it were some sort of slander coined by the Anti-Defamation League or the Southern Poverty Law Center. Like it or not, it is important to elucidate these things because we, as a group, we identity Christians, need to pursue the truth. And we need to be able to recognize the lies. That is our Christian obligation. Eli likes to flippantly brag that I never refuted his paper. Crumbs. But in reality, there are a hundred podcasts and essay presentations at Christagenia, which do refute his paper. Every aspect of it. Every aspect that's not true. But if I were to address the paper directly, there are so many false premises upon which it is predicated that I would have to write an entire book. And Eli James simply is not worth such an effort. He thinks too highly of himself when he insists that he is. I would rather believe that the people who actually follow our work at Christagenia and study behind us, which is what we desire, should easily recognize his many errors. But here we shall briefly discuss a couple of aspects of Eli's paper which display his absolute honesty as an interpreter of scripture. The first is where he is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31 
and he says the following. He says, continuing with this pericope, we're picking up his discussion of the verse in the middle. He quotes Jeremiah, And it shall come to pass, like as I have watched over them, to pluck up and to break down, and to throw down, and to destroy and to afflict. So will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith Yahweh. And Eli makes a parenthetical remark here and says that, Just as Yahweh has punished us, he will also watch over us if we will only obey his laws. And that's not quite what the scripture said, but Eli is adding things in where they don't belong. Continuing to quote Jeremiah, he says, In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Everyone that eats the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. And Eli was quoting Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 28 through 30. And he claims that there are three concepts being stated in Jeremiah 31, 27 through 29, all of which contradict the exterminationist viewpoint. And I must add that they only contradict our viewpoint in the twisted manner by which he interprets them. Now he lists these three points, and I'll try to repeat them without adding too many comments. He says, one, the sour grape is a proverb about the sins of the parents falling upon their children. Race mixing, he says, is only one of these sins. Although our children can be blessed or cursed with good or bad parents, Yahweh judges them as to how they handle their situations. He never judges anyone, not even Canaanites, for being mongrels. Precisely because the mongrel children are not guilty of the sin, Yahweh does prohibit them from entering the congregation of Israel. Deuteronomy 23.2 And of course we're going to agree with that in part, but we seriously disagree with where Eli James says that Yahweh does not judge anyone for being mongrels. And we shall see that he certainly does. We shall see that Eli James is a liar. The second point he makes about that passage, he says, this passage is clearly saying that after the new covenant is established, we Israelites will no more recite this proverb. We will no longer blame our parents for our own problems. So, why are the exterminationists trying to revive it? And the proverb isn't dead yet, as we shall see. So, we don't have to revive it. We still suffer for the sins of our parents. The evidence of that is all around us. And Eli's third point is this. Not only will this proverb be forgotten, we will understand that we have only ourselves to blame for our sins. Now, we would actually agree with most of what Eli wrote here. But concerning mongrels or bastards, there are a few concepts which are false premises with which we cannot agree. And we shall show that Eli is lying. It is, of course, true that mongrels are excluded from the congregations of Israel. There's no doubt. 
But on the other hand, Eli seeks to include them by applying the promise of Jeremiah chapter 31 to them. So he is a double-minded man. And while it is true that we should only have ourselves to blame for our sins, we would assert that the new covenant is not truly established until it is consummated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the meantime, we all clearly continue to suffer for the errors of our ancestors. In the second passage, where he further elaborates on the same topic, this is what he says, and this is one short paragraph, He says, yes, a mongrel is not allowed in the congregation of Yahweh, but neither is this a death sentence. Since the parents are the ones guilty of the sin, it is they who must be punished for it. Even in Ezra and Nehemiah, the mongrels were cast out, but they were not punished with death. They were allowed to live in neighboring lands. They were not punished merely for being mongrels. Not even Cain was so punished, Genesis, citing Genesis 4-7, because it was not his sin. Adam and Eve, however, were punished with death for the sin. Cain was not punished with the expulsion until, with expulsion until after he murdered Abel, citing Genesis 4-14. And then he adds a little question here. Not so. And in response to these words of Eli, Firstly, in Ezra and Nehemiah, the parents of bastards were not punished and were only commanded to repent by putting away their alien wives and children. This was the only possible solution in the political climate of the time as the Judeans were still subject to the Persians. And so were the bastards. Furthermore, Cain was not punished for his crime because there was no law. As Paul said in Romans, death reigned from Adam until Moses, but sin was not accounted because there is no law. However, Adam and Eve were punished because they violated the only commandment which Yahweh God had given them, which was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they had a law, which they transgressed, and their punishment fit the transgression. But Cain was not governed by any law, so he was not punished. Instead, his progeny were later used to help punish the children of Israel when they sinned. And that remains their role until the day of the wrath of Yahweh, when he takes vengeance upon his enemies. Vengeance is his. Secondly, mongrels are not properly children. They may be physical children, because of the circumstances of their birth, but they are not children in relation to the covenants of God. In Jeremiah, Yahweh is addressing the children of Israel with whom he is going to make a new covenant. Yahweh does not make covenants with bastards. As Paul of Tarsus pointed out in Hebrews chapter 12, a passage which Eli himself had quoted earlier in the paper, one is either a bastard or a son. Sons are children in every way, Sons have an opportunity to assume the position of sonship. And Jeremiah 31 applies to them. But it does not apply to bastard children who are disqualified by the law. Furthermore, the proverb won't be forgotten until Christ returns 
and every tear is wiped from the eyes of his children, as men today are still being punished for their sins, as well as the sins of their ancestors. Lastly, where it says that the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge, Eli fails to interpret that passage at all, except to devise a lie concerning these sour grapes. When Eve race mixed with the serpent, Abel's teeth were set on edge. When Judah had Canaanite sons, the teeth of his true sons, Pharez and Zara, were set on edge. The entire history of the kingdom of Judah proves that. Sour grapes are born of bad trees, trees that cannot produce good fruit, and that is why the children's teeth are set on edge, because the Canaanites were to be pricks and thorns to the Israelites. When when Israel did not destroy them all as they were commanded. But if we examine the punishment of Adam described in Genesis chapter 3, we find the same warning where he was told, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and also, also thistles shall it bring forth to thee. This is not a warning about future problems with agriculture. Rather, it is an allegorical warning about the thorns and thistles that would spring up among his descendants because of his sin in the garden. Likewise, Eve was told that in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children because of the enmity between her seed and the seed of the serpent which she was going to have to witness. And Abel was killed for it. Eve bore Abel in sorrow because Abel was killed by Cain. The result of her sin. Eli James cunningly abuses the story of the Canaanite woman in order to promote a backdoor sort of universalism in Christian identity and only fools would tolerate such treachery. Because of liars such as Eli James, today the Canaanite woman fulfills her God-given role as a prick and a thorn in the eyes of all those who would listen to Eli James. But this illustrates just a few of the false premises upon which Eli James predicates his perverse interpretations of Scripture. Some of the others he has summarized more neatly in other places. For example, in a program Eli did with Greg Howard on his old Voice of Christian Israel program on TalkShoe, on January 3rd, I'm sorry, January 23rd, 2011, the very weekend when our relationship was severed, just after the hour and 20 minute mark, Eli James exclaimed, is the mongrel guilty of the sin? As, and does Yahweh punish those who did not commit the sin? Obviously, he does not. And this is the, the same sympathy he showed for mongrels in his paper Crumbs, which we have just read from. 
Earlier in the same program, Eli said, Yahshua has no intention of exterminating all Canaanites. Some of these Canaanites will be allowed to live wherever they were created. And we have links to the actual original podcasts, which will be in our notes. There is no doubt Eli James said these things. And this is why we split. Eli said these things the very morning after we had done what turned out to be our last podcast together, discussing Revelation chapters 6 through 8. When Eli said these things, among other duplicitous remarks which he had made in that podcast, I was done with him and pulled the plug on our working relationship. Eli has been in damage control mode ever since slandering both Clifton and I and misrepresenting our words and teachings in many of his podcasts and articles, as he also twists the scripture to leave gray areas which amount to a veiled sort of universalism. Now, we do not know where Canaanites were created. That idea is ridiculous, since they are all bastards. And Yahweh did not create any bastards. But Yahshua Christ stated, quite the contrary to Eli's claims, when he said that every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up, which would ostensibly include all bastards, every beast of a third kind. Shortly before that, he said that as therefore, Christ said that as therefore, the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. Whereas Eli evidently believes that Yahshua would only move the tares to another place so that they may live happily ever after. The revelation of Yahshua Christ informs us as to exactly what our God thinks about bastards. There, in chapter 2, we read in the message to the church at Theatira, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. This is Christ. This is the revelation. This isn't the Old Testament. I will kill her children with death. Race mixing is a form of fornication, which we see attested in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in the epistle of Jude. The Greek word for adultery was also used in reference to race mixing, as we have recently shown from the writings of Strabo and Aristotle in our presentation of chapter 1 of Paul's epistle to Titus. So Jezebel and those who commit adultery with her are cast into tribulation unless they repent, but they are not killed. 
But then Christ says, And I will kill her children with death. Those who commit adultery with Jezebel are not killed with death, but only the children are. Ostensibly, this must be because the children are bastards. Being bastards, they are not subject to the promises found in Jeremiah chapter 31. And this is in the Revelation. So Eli is wrong on several levels of his interpretation of Jeremiah 31.30. Since these bastard children indeed suffer from the sins of their fornicating parents. In any event, Eli James is a liar. I should say, Joseph November is a liar. Certainly Christ does punish and shall punish the children of fornicators and adulterers. It's right there in black and white in Revelation chapter 2. At the end of his crumbs paper, Eli James proclaimed that extermination is dead. Again, he's a liar. Here I am six years later. We are confident that exterminationism will be dead, but not until the last bastard is exterminated. If you consider this liar a pastor, please do not listen here any longer, as you clearly do not have the Spirit of Christ by which to determine that Eli James, or Joseph November, is a false prophet and no better than the serpent himself. He is a thorn and a prick in the eye of every Israelite who still listens to him. And that would be a putz in German. With this, we shall commence with Clifton Emmerheiser's special notice to all who deny to seed line. Part 4. Clifton makes a note here that he had slightly revised this paper from the original on June 14, 2008. The original, as far as I could tell from the method which Clifton afforded me to tell, the original seems to have been completed in July of 2001. I actually have a um, a folder of old files from Clifton, which I could not open when I first um, tried to in Microsoft Word. I think that was Word 2007, wouldn't open Clifton's WordPro, Lotus WordPro files. And because I saved that folder, the dates are preserved. That's the only way I could tell when he wrote which paper, to be honest. <laughs> Clifton begins by saying that this is a continuation of a topic of the utmost monumental importance, for we are moving very rapidly toward the climax of a 7,000-plus-year-old war. The forces from both sides of this war are gathering for a final battle which will culminate in the total extermination of one side or the other. This war will not end with a truce or an armistice, but will be a fight to the death. As a matter of fact, we are already in this last great battle, and for the moment we are rapidly going down to defeat. That's apparent, just like it was apparent that the children of Israel, when they were up against the shores of the Red Sea, were in for a defeat, and they prevailed with Yahweh their God, and we will prevail with Yahweh our God. Clifton says, and unless our people wake up, 
PDQ, or pretty damned quick, we are in for one H of a conflict, and we are indeed in for one hell of a conflict. All one has to do is observe the multiculturalism and miscegenation that is going on, and you can very quickly calculate where we stand in this life and death struggle. While all this is going on, the masses have been lulled into a state of indifference and unconcern, while the clergy are actually aiding and abetting the enemy. And if this were not bad enough, the anti-seedliners blow the trumpet with an uncertain sound. And then Clifton cites 1 Corinthians 14.8, For if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? By denying the two-seed-line message of Genesis 3.15, this is exactly what they are doing. Actually, it's a capital crime in a time of danger not to identify the enemy. Today, Israel is in great peril, greater peril than at any time in her history. And Clifton cites Mark 13.22, speaking of the time of the end. I would say, I would interject, I will interject, that most of the anti-seedliners, most of them, not all of them, most of the anti-seedliners whom I have encountered the past several years have been accepting of the notions that there can be good Jews and that there can be good people from among the non-Adamic races who may even be our allies. They really don't understand who the call to come out from among requires Christians to come out from among. This is dangerous, since when we ally ourselves with the enemies of our God, we surely will end up on the wrong end of his wrath. So, in essence, the so-called pastors blowing the trumpet to make an uncertain sound are complicit in the murders of our brethren by the enemies of our God. This is murder by peace, when Christ himself denied that he came to, be, to bring peace. So Clifton rather appropriately continues, under the subtitle, An Uncertain Sound. We will shortly see an excellent example of a trumpet with an uncertain sound. Once we understand we are in a war, where the Jews are, quote-unquote, the Jews, the Edomite Jews, are implementing their plan to interbreed the white Israelite peoples out of existence. Any rhetorical proclamation which would aid such a cause would be very traitorous and untimely. Jeffrey A. Weekly, a fervently caustic anti-seedliner, in his book, The Satanic Seedline, its doctrine and history, says this on pages 30 and 31, and quoting Jeffrey Weekly, the results of the Satanic Seedline teaching. The results of the Satanic Seedline teaching, and he has a parenthetical remark here, if accepted as true, should speak for themselves. Most seedliners hate Jews today, those who claim to be, because of their ethnic origin. For the same reason, they honor the white races because of their ethnic origin, 
This easily leads to race worship. They stress the physical aspect of God's word, that is, the physical descent of Israel, which is ignored by most churches today, so much that they forget or neglect the spiritual aspect, which is of more importance. And he has Galatians, a reference to Galatians 3, 26-29, in parentheses there. They make true the words in Samuel 16:7, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And that comment in Samuel 16:7 has nothing to do with race. If we go read James chapter 2, we learn that it has everything to do with stature or the status of a man. James makes reference to the same thing as Paul also often does. And every time it has to do with status and position. It has nothing to do with race. It's status and position amongst brethren. It has nothing to do with Negroes and Chinamen as compared to whites. There were no Negroes and Chinamen in 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7. But the children of Israel were still under penalty for not having killed the Canaanites. Finishing or or continuing with Clifton's quote from Jeffrey Weekly. Many seedliners go so far as to say that only whites or Israelites can have eternal life with Christ. Now it is clear that only Israelites can be redeemed. But this is not to say that other races can't be born again. Our eternal life, he says, is the result of our election by God to accept his son by faith. If these scriptures are not are to be accepted, we must conclude that people of all races can be born again. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of the truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation... He fears he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. The seed liners that worship their race are no different than those who purport to be Jews. Jews today take pride in their race and consider themselves better than everyone else. Even the Jewish religion, Judaism, teaches that Jews are superior by race. This ludicrous belief was taught at the Baptist Bible College I intended attended. There is no doubt that God chose Israel to be his people, but nowhere do I find that it was because Israel was a superior race. So whether it be seed liners or Jews, the idea of a superior race is inconsistent with the teachings of God's word. And the proof that weekly is taking Peter out of context lies right in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle himself told the Greek Christians whom he was writing to in Anatolia that they were a chosen race. And, of course, the King James Version has chosen generation there. But the word is genos, and it means race. Race. 
a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now that phrase, out of darkness into his marvelous light, is an allusion to the children of Israel sitting in darkness, described of the people of the captivity and here Peter is addressing their descendants and then in the very next verse Peter makes a reference which can only be to the children of Israel because he is quoting from Hosea chapter 1 which concerns only the children of Israel so Jeffrey Jeffrey Weekly is certainly a liar. Just like the deceit which is found in Eli James's writing, Weekly's assertions are based on false premises which would require several lengthier paragraphs to correct in their entirety. Before continuing with Clifton's response, I will only state that first, we are not children of Yahweh because we are white. Rather, we are white if we are the children of Yahweh, because that is the order of his creation, the Adamic man, kind after kind. And we do not have the Spirit of God because we accept Jesus, or Yahshua. Rather, we accept Yahshua because we have the Spirit of God within us from the beginning, and we choose to abide by it. Every Adamic man has the opportunity, or woman, has the opportunity to obey the Spirit and accept Christ, or to remain in a state of disobedience. This opportunity was never offered to any of the other so-called races. Weekly interprets everything the opposite of how it should be interpreted. Nobody is born again, but rather, the children of God are born from above. So Clifton answers and he says, As you can plainly see, Jeffrey A. Weekly is in no position to fight back at the enemy in this great racial war to destroy the Israel race. With his attitude on race, it wouldn't be surprising if his daughter or granddaughter ended up getting pregnant by a Negro or a Mongolian. But that would probably be alright with him as long as they are born again. He indicates, according to his knowledge, that the Bible doesn't teach such a thing. Mr. Jeffrey A. Wheatley should be reminded that the Almighty killed two of Judah's sons by his Canaanite wife in order to prevent the satanic gene pool from getting into the royal messianic line. You will notice Wheatley used Galatians 3, 26-29 to try to make his point. Let's take a look at that passage and see what it is really talking about. Weekly intimates that in this passage it is speaking of other races getting into the kingdom, when of course it's speaking of no such thing. Clifton cites Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 through 29, where it says that, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have been, have put on Christ. For there is neither Judean nor Greek. For there is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. 
For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. And I would say that that last verse, as I've explained at length, in a presentation on the Epistle to the Galatians that was presented here maybe two or three years ago, I don't actually remember, that last verse is a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. If you are Abraham's seed, then you are Christ's. If you are Christ's, is the factional fact is the factual implication made by the fact that you are Abraham's seed. Both sides of the equation have to be true. And we explain that at length, and I will link my Galatians presentation that explains that to these notes this evening. I, can't sim- I simply can't repeat it all. The point Clifton seeks to make is this. Paul wrote that ye are all the children of God to Galatians, not to Nigerians. The Galatians were descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity, for which reason Paul also told them in Galatians that Christ came to redeem them that were under the law, and none of the other races were ever under the law. When we go to the Old Testament to see what Christ came to redeem, we will see that Yahweh had promised to redeem the children of Israel from death. Now, if Weakley himself admits that only the children of Israel were redeemed, And if all men die, and only the children of Israel are redeemed from death. Hosea chapter 13 verse 14. I will redeem them from death. Isaiah chapter 50. The children of Israel sold themselves into sin. And they were to die for their sin. But Yahweh God promised to redeem them. So only the children of Israel, in the end, will live. It's that simple. None of the other races were ever under the law. Paul told the Galatians in chapter 4 that Christ came to redeem them that were under the law. Like this other person which Clifton addresses here, Weekly's treachery is in clear conflict with the context of Paul's epistle and the entire scripture. Continuing with Clifton... He says, with this passage, and and the other person is coming up shortly, with this passage, Weekly attempts to bring all the other races under Yahweh's covenant to Abraham. This is the same approach that Judeo-Churchianity uses. Another Judeo-Churchianity person, trying to make the same point as Weekly, also quoted to me Colossians 3.11, where it says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. This other person also quoted me Romans chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, 
chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Chapter 11, verse 13, in order to bring other races under the covenant. I wrote and answered this person. You quoted me Romans chapter 10, Galatians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, Romans chapters 2 and 11. I don't want to appear as a smart aleck or a know-it-all, but I would like to present some background on these passages, which I can authenticate from a combination of scripture, secular history, and archaeology. <coughs> Excuse me. Clifton continues by writing this other person who made the same arguments to him that Weekly had made. As you quoted three passages from Romans, let's consider who the Romans were. If you will look up in your encyclopedia, and you may have to use more than one, for the founding of Rome, you will find it was established under the insignia of a she-wolf, the story of Romulus and Remus. Who then in the Bible is identified as the wolf? The answer is found in Genesis 49.27. Benjamin is the wolf. Some of the Romans to whom Paul preached were Israelites of the tribes of Zerah and probably some Benjaminites. Do you know anyone by the name of Wolf? No doubt he is a Benjaminite. Also the name Wilson means wolf's son. As Zerah also settled in that area, many of the Romans were definitely of the house of Zerah When it says in Romans 10.12, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, it is indicating that there is no difference between the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Judah, for they are both Israelites. The term Jew must be qualified as there were true Israelites of the tribe of Judah and some counterfeit people claiming themselves to be the tribe of Judah, to be of the tribe of Judah, but lying about it, citing Revelation chapter 2 verse 9 and chapter 3 verse 9. And Clifton's argument here is fine for someone who appreciates symbolism and prophecy. However, we may have taken, I may have taken a more technical approach. Paul had told the Romans that they had the truth of God. They had the truth of Yahweh God and turned it into a lie. And that Yahweh had turned them over to sin because they had turned their backs on him. These things are only relevant to descendants of the Old Testament Israelites. And the narrative of the Old Testament establishes that assertion as a fact. Then in Romans chapter 4, Paul explained that through his gospel, the promise was made certain to all the, of the seed of Abraham, referring to the seed which had come from Abraham's loins, just as the promise to Abraham was spoken. And Paul says that very explicitly. By the time of Christ, the children of Israel had already become many nations. And those nations were Greeks and Romans and Scythians and barbarians. But they were not Chinamen or Hottentots or Indians or Mayans or Eskimos. So Paul did not bring his gospel to those other places. Clifton continues his answer to this other Judeo-Christian letter writer. And he says, as the word Greek is used three times in those passages, let's investigate who the Greeks were. Some of the tribe of Dan left Egypt before the Exodus. And Clifton makes a parenthetical remark that he has 
documentation. As Hebrew writing has no vowels, it is written simply as D-N, it being the name of the tribe of Dan. Variations of the name can be Dan, Dan, Din, Don, or Dunn. Do you know anyone by the names of Dunn, Dunbar, Duncan, Dunham, or Dunlap? Genesis 49.17 says Dan shall be a serpent by the way. Judges 5.17 indicates that Dan literally lived in his ships. Dan in his ships wove like a serpent up every river valley, putting up a sign with his name on it. The river Danube is named after him. The name MacDonald means son of Don or Dan. Paul preached at a place called Macedonia in Greeks. In Greece, I'm sorry. I know you know the story. When Paul was preaching there to Danites, he was preaching to Israelites. And once again, while Clifton's answer appeals to people who love symbols, and that is fine, there are many more technical, historical, and archaeological proofs that the Greek Danans and the Hebrew Danites, the Danae, as they are called, and the Dani, which is the plural of Dan in Hebrew, are the same people. Clifton was ready to offer his correspondent some of that information. Some of those proofs are in Scripture, and Clifton already cited Judges chapter 5, but there is more. For instance, where it says of the ancient city of Tyre, in Ezekiel chapter 27, that Dan also and Javan, going to and fro, occupied in thy fairs. It was speaking of Dan and Greeks, and Ionian Greeks, which are Dan and Javan. Some of the earliest Greek literature makes the same connection, where it is explained that the Danans came to Greece from Egypt several generations before the Trojan War. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul also explains that many of the Greeks, especially the Dorians, were also Israelites. Paul's statements in that regard are verified in 1 Maccabees and in the histories of Flavius Josephus. The Macedonians were also derived from a combination of Danans and Dorians as well as the Illyrians, who were another branch of the Israelite Trojans and related to the Romans. But Colossae was a Greek city of Asia Minor, so Clifton continues, I'm glad you quoted Colossians 3.11. What this verse is saying, in essence, is there is no difference between a genuine member of the Israelite tribe of Judah and the Israelite Greek tribe of Dan. There is no difference between a circumcised Israelite and an uncircumcised Israelite. There is no difference between a barbarian Israelite and a Scythian Israelite. There is no difference between a bond Israelite or a free Israelite, for Christ Yahshua is genetically a brother or related to all of them. Galatians 3, chapter 28, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, goes on to indicate there is no genetic difference between an Israelite male or an Israelite female. For if you are a genetic relative to Christ Yahshua, you are Abraham's sperma, and you are included under Yahweh's covenant to Abraham. And we would add that the Dorians were mostly of Manasseh, from Dor, a city of Manasseh. Clifton says, there is one other group we should talk about, 
and that is Zerah-Judah. There is much evidence that some of Zerah-Judah, like Dan, left Egypt before the Exodus. If you will check 1 Chronicles chapter 2 verse 6, you will find that Zerah had a son by the name of Dara. In 1 Kings 4.31, his name is spelled Darda. This branch of Zerah-Judah left Egypt, as I say, before the Exodus. Today the area they settled is named the Dardanelles, although they are long gone from there. And the figure Dardanus in all of the Greek histories, Dardanus was the legendary founder of Troy, the city which became known as Troy. Clifton says they were Trojans and established the city of Troy where they lived for 400 years. The Israelite Trojans then moved to Italy, and while some stayed in Italy, others returned to the Aegean area, built hundreds of ships, and sailed to Britain. And if we trace the Trojans as they are described in their genealogies supplied by Homer, we will see that that 400-year period is not a fantastic period at all. In fact, the um, genealogy of the Trojan princes given by Homer from the time of from the time of Darda down to the time of Priam, the king of Troy during the Trojan Wars, and Hector, his son, the great prince who was slain by Achilles, very much accommodates the assertion that Darda departed from Egypt shortly before the Exodus. Clifton says, the Israelite Trojans then moved to Italy, and that happened after the Trojan War. And while some stayed in Italy, others returned to the Asian area, built hundreds of ships, and sailed to Britain. This part of Zarajuda's history is completely documented by Bible and secular history. There are no missing links. In other words, it is an absolute historical fact that Zarajuda made it to Britain. The Scottish Highlanders wore kilts like the Trojans. In his 1999 book, The Bible is History by Ian Wilson on page 87, it has been found that the Israelites of Canaan wore kilts also. It has been a mode of Israelite dress from the beginning. There are many ways by which, and these are my remarks, there are many ways by which Israelite traditions and habits made their way to Britain, especially through the Israelite Phoenicians first, and that's from 1500, 1400, 1300 BC, and then later through the Picts and the Kimri or Cimmerians, while the Scots themselves came even later than them. The migration of the Trojan prince Brutus to Britain is documented no earlier than the first century poet Virgil in his Aeneid, which certainly seems to be a political document more than it is a historical one. That is why I don't, I myself, I don't teach anything about Brutus. It sought to, Virgil's Aeneid sought to justify both the earlier Roman aggression against Carthage and also the contemporary but failed attempts of Julius Caesar to conquer Britain, 
so I am skeptical of the overall veracity of the work. However, there do seem to be early archaeological findings which suggest a Trojan presence in Britain, which are discussed by E.O. Gordon in his book of about a hundred years ago, named Prehistoric London, and they certainly merit further investigation. However, the connection of the Romans to the Trojans, and the Trojans to Zarajuda, and therefore the Israelite and Trojan origin of the Romans, is much clearer in scripture and history. And the Illyrians are also related to the Romans in the same way. I have already stated that this series of Cliftons probably helped me to in, help to inspire my paper, written a short while later, which was titled Classical Records of Trojan Roman Judah, and much of it had been written before. I simply wanted to compile the parts that I felt could be definitely established into one short essay, which Clifton then published. It was maybe in 2004, 5, 6, I don't remember when. Clifton continues addressing this same individual, and he says, and this individual Clifton addresses here because his arguments are very much the same as the arguments of Geoffrey Weekly. As for the barbarians and Scythians, in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 20, Yahweh told Israel, Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war. For with thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. Judah was the fighting tribe. The barbarians of Paul's time were the German tribes, and are rightly described as such in Jeremiah. My ancestors were these same barbarians, for I am German and of the tribe of Judah. The name Scythian is one of the names which the Israelites were called after breaking away from the Assyrians. Therefore, the Scythians spoke of in Colossians 3.11 are definitely Israelites. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, all the scripture references you quoted me were speaking only of Israelites. And of course, I wouldn't identify every German with the tribe of Judah, but there certainly are prophecies that seem to indicate to us that the Germanic tribes had to a great degree descended from Judah, and a great number of them are found in Germany. While the term barbarian was used of Germans, it really only described anyone who did not speak Greek. In Paul's time, the term was also used to describe the people of Malta in Acts chapter 28. The Maltese were actually very civilized people who descended from the Phoenicians, who were themselves a portion of the Israelites. The term barbarian was also used by Flavius Josephus, who wrote his Wars of the Judeans to his kinsmen, whom he had called the Upper Barbarians in the preface of the book, so that they would somehow be encouraged to join in the Judean revolt against Roman imperialism. That's right, a good understanding of Flavius Josephus proves Christian identity. Those upper barbarians to whom he wrote included the tribes known to us as the Parthians, the Goths, and the Alans, all of whom descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. I later explained all of this in an essay titled Classical Records of the 
origins of the Scythians, Parthians, and related tribes. Without a doubt, these are the peoples whom Paul intended when he spoke of barbarians and Scythians. So Clifton continues, What I wrote to this other person, I now announce to Jeffrey A. Weekly. Now Weekly accuses us two seedliners of taking scripture out of context, but who really is? For he proved absolutely nothing to back up his thesis by referring to Galatians 3.26-29. Jeffrey Weekly then proceeds on pages 14-20 of his book, The Satanic Seedline, Its Doctrine and History, to try to prove that two-seedline doctrine, according to his assumption, must be false. In doing this, he presents some history of the identity movement which I believe you will find interesting, although his conclusions, as in his foregoing postulation, are flawed. Now quoting Jeffrey Weekly again, Clifton says, or Weekly writes, I should say, the origin of the false teaching. If, as I contend, meaning Weekly, the Satanic Seedline Doctrine, as taught by the Seedliners, is not found in the scriptures, and since it was not taught by any of the early church fathers as being correct, and we will destroy that idea tonight, how did it find its way into the Christian belief system known as identity? To find the answer, we need to properly define identity. There are at least three specific systems of belief which are very similar, and yet each is distinctly different. There are the Anglo-Israel, British Israel, and Christian Israel beliefs. Identity can be included in all three of identity can include all three of these beliefs depending on how they are taught. Weekly's the Pope, right? For a definition of identity, we will go to the man who first made the term popular in America over fifty years ago, citing a book called The National Christians, published in nineteen ninety one. That man is Howard B. Rand. The preaching of that identity has been going on for years now. It has resulted in millions in Anglo-Saxondom becoming acquainted with the fact that they are lineal descendants of the northern ten-tribed kingdom of Israel. Thus the Anglo-Saxon Celtic people stand out as Israel in these later days. Citing the study in Revelation by Howard B. Rand. And I would say that Howard B. Rand's major error... His biggest error is to believe that the Jews were Judah, which is certainly not true. But, oh, that's two seed line, excuse me. Before I continue with Clifton's citation of Weekly's subterfuge here, let me first state that Weekly is lying, where he said that two seed line was not taught by any of the early church fathers. He's absolutely full of shit. The late 2nd century Christian bishop of Carthage, Tertullian, wrote in chapter 22 of his Apology that, and I quote, We are instructed, moreover, by our sacred books, how from certain angels who fell of their own free will, there sprang a more wicked demon brood, condemned of God, along with the authors of their race, and that chief we have referred to. It will for the present be enough, however, that some account is given of their work, 
Their great business is the ruin of mankind. So from the very first, spiritual wickedness sought our destruction. From the very first would be like maybe Genesis chapter 3. This is precisely what we teach as two seed line. And in book 5 of his reply to Machion, Tertullian repeats some of these same sentiments where he contrasted the race of Christ consisting of the chosen twelve tribes to the brood of the wicked. Tertullian's writing is not perfect as there are many things which may be misconstrued by universalists but these things we have illustrated (coughs) are certainly agreeable to what we call to seed line. Likewise, Justin Motter, in chapter 5 of his second apology, wrote, But the angels transgressed this appointment, and were captivated by love of women, and begot children, who were those that are called demons. Imagine that. They afterwards subdued the human race to themselves, partly by magical writings. Sounds like a proto-Kabbalah. And partly by fears and the punishments they occasioned. And partly by teaching them to offer sacrifices and incense and libations, of which things they stood in need after they were enslaved by lustful passions. It sounds like Justin Motter is following some of Paul's statements in Colossians chapter 2. And among men, They sowed murders, wars, adulteries, intemperate deeds, and all wickedness. Now these and other similar passages from Justin, from Origen, and from the epistles of Ignatius were all discussed in a July 2015 presentation that I made here with Sven Longshanks, which was titled Early Two Seed Lines. Jeffrey Weekly is indeed a liar, who probably only took it for granted that these things are not found in the early Christian writings, for they are most certainly are found in them. Clifton continues to cite Weekly's book, and he says, or Weekly writes, Thus, identity is the belief or teaching that the Anglo-Saxon and kindred peoples are the physical descendants of the northern ten-tribed kingdom of Israel, in the Old Testament. I will note here that many believe that Wesley Swift founded identity, citing a book called Bitter Harvest by James Corcoran, in 1946, meaning that Swift founded identity in 1946, and others that the identity movement was conceived and first spread by three men with ties to the radical right, Wesley Swift, Bertrand Compare, and William Gale citing a book called God, Guts, and Guns by Philip Finch on page 68. If he's a German Finch, I'm going to strip him of his Germanity. (laughs) Weekly says, although this view is set forth, it is simply the product of those who do too little research and do not yet have all the facts. The simple fact is that the term identity as used to describe the Anglo-Saxon history, was used as far back as 1884, when Eliezer Basson used it. 
He tells how he picked it up from others before him. However, it was Howard B. Rand that called the Anglo-Israel history identity. Rand did not hold or teach the Satanic Seedline Doctrine. Two sons were born to Adam and Eve, and they were named in their order, Cain and Abel, according to Primogenesis by Howard Rand on page 41. The Satanic Seedline was brought into the identity teaching with San Jacinto Capt and Wesley A. Swift. Actually, San Jacinto Capt claimed to have gotten Wesley Swift started in identity citing a book called Committee of the States by Sherry Seymour. In any case, Wesley Swift presented the Seed Line Doctrine to Gerald L. K. Smith, citing a book by Smith himself. From there, Swift got Bertrand Compare started, who was an attorney that represented Gerald Smith. And shortly later, Jacinto Capt, the father of E. Raymond Capt, who has written many outstanding books on archaeology, introduced William P. Gale to Swift. In later years, Richard Butler would take over Swift's church, now known as Aryan Nations, according to Lorraine Swift in a letter to me in 2006 or seven, She told me that Mike Hallamore was the official heir to Wesley Swift's ministry. Butler did assume a great portion of the church, but I don't know if Swift intended that. I'm not going to say anything bad about Butler. I'm only stating what I know to be true. (coughs) Mike Hallamore is Kingdom Identity Ministries. The last paragraph Clifton cites from Weekly states that, As this is not meant to be a history of the identity movement, I will stop here. But suffice it to say that the Seedline Doctrine saturated identity through the influence of San Jacinto Capt, Wesley Swift, and William P. Gale. Where did they get this belief? Captain Swift both got it from the Ku Klux Klan. They were both members, citing the book Committee of the States by Sherry Seymour. I don't know if that name Seymour is actually German or not, but that's her name. Before giving Clifton's response to this nonsense, we must state that identity cannot stop at the wheat. For that reason, we are not going to abide by Weekly's personal definition. Proper historical identity of the ancient peoples of Scripture must include both the wheat and the tares, and what Yahweh had planted with an understanding of what Yahweh had not planted which has been planted by the devil according to the words of Christ himself. Planted by the devil at the beginning. Anything short of that prevents the children of God from fulfilling their Christian duty to come out from among them and be separate, since they would never know what to come out from among. Anything short of that is scattering because one is not gathering with Christ, who urges us not to gather grapes from thorns and pricks, or figs from thistles. Here Clifton responds in another manner, and he says, we need to interrupt weakly at this point, for he is making a dangerous and uncalled for false assumption. 
From this point on, for the rest of chapter 4 of his book, he builds a case based on circumstantial supposition. He first makes the claim just quoted, that San Jacinto Cat and Wesley A. Swift got the Satanic Seedline Doctrine from the Ku Klux Klan. He next presents evidence the Ku Klux Klan was instituted by the Masons. Then he makes a connection of the Masons with the Gnostics. And lastly, he connects the Gnostics with the Jews and the Talmud, and makes the same and makes the claim that the Satanic Seedline Doctrine originated with the Jews. Weekly is basically a Jew worshiper, so just on that fact, he should have recognized it as true. But um, that's just a digression in order to make a joke. Clifton says that Jeffrey A. Weekly has a weak link in his hypothesis. He did not prove with any tangible evidence that there was a connection of the Satanic Seedline Doctrine with the Ku Klux Klan. If he had had any evidence, you could be quite sure he would have quoted it. There isn't any. And he didn't. It is like saying that he saw a person check in at a motel one night at Salem, Massachusetts, and then swearing to God on a stack of Bibles 20 feet high, proclaiming he knew for a fact that person practiced witchcraft. I would sure hate to be on trial for my life and have Weekly as a juror. Let's now continue with Weekly's remarks on the Ku Klux Klan on pages 15 and 16. And Weekly writes... The Klan takes some explaining. The first Ku Klux Klan was organized in Tennessee in 1867 under the leadership of General N.B. Forrest, meaning Nathaniel Bedford Forrest. This Klan was disbanded sometime in 1869, citing Vigilantes of Christendom by Richard Hoskins. The next official Ku Klux Klan was founded in 1915 as the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the founder was Richard I'm sorry the founder was William Joseph Simmons, who was a royal archmason, citing something called Occult Theocracy by Lady Queensborough or Edith Starr Miller. He says thus the Ku Klux Klan got its seed line doctrine from the Masonic teaching. Many people do not know that a Mason started the Ku Klux Klan, and fewer people know the Masons teach the Seedline Doctrine. William P. Gale became an honorary member of the Ku Klux Klan after he had already been teaching the Seedline Doctrine for some time. He denied that he developed his belief from the Ku Klux Klan, and this may be true. William P. Gale was a long-time Mason, and developed his seedline belief from the same place the Ku Klux Klan got theirs, the Masons. Now I will prove that the Masons teach seedline. And I don't know how he proves that, since I don't have a copy of the book myself, but I'm sure he really doesn't prove it. And I have never seen anything like the seedline doctrine come from Masons or the Ku Klux Klan. And I personally know many people in the Ku Klux Klan that are not seedliners, some that are anti-seedliners, and some that are simply oblivious to the argument at all. 
I must say that I myself heard, and I'm going to discuss my own experience here, I myself heard of what we call 2C line in 1997, and I was, I immediately began to study it intensely to see if it was true. But my response was not to read Emma Heiser, who was only just thinking about starting his ministry at that point, or Swift, or Compare, or any of the others. Initially, I read a lot of their writings, and the writings of some others. I read Verboten, I read William J. Cameron, who is not a seed liner, Robert Balakias. But I decided <coughs> to stop reading any other identity writers by mid-1998 and I was determined to study the issues using original source materials exclusively. When I made that decision, I took a couple of months just to put together a reading list and investigating where to find the appropriate books. In the meantime, I had only made an exception. When a friend put me on Clifton Emmeheiser's mailing list sometime around July or August of 1998, and after I wrote Clifton a letter to argue with him over a certain aspect of history, Clifton eventually asked me to do his proofreading. I think that was probably at the very end of 1999, maybe in the opening months of 2000. So aside from scripture and history, for 10 years, from 98 to 2008, I read nothing else except for what Clifton was also writing and our related correspondence. I read nothing else except from my original documentation, from the cl except the classics and, and all of the original material I could find. Corresponding with Clifton, and operating with only classical histories, apocryphal materials, which I read practically all of them, and Greek and Hebrew language resources, and original Greek texts, because there are no good original Hebrew texts. Aside from the King James Version, and a couple of concordances, and the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and things like that, after another year or so of study, I was fully convinced that 2C line, or as I would rather call it, 2 tree line, is absolutely true. But through many of our written dialogues, I think that eventually Clifton and I went far beyond what Swift and Compare had diagrammed, and I also think that we are much closer to the truth of race in Scripture today. However, Clifton never quoted the Talmud, or a Freemason, or a Gnostic to substantiate 2C line in any of his writings. In fact, he generally only quoted scripture and some popularly accepted Bible commentaries and encyclopedias to substantiate practically all of his assertions. And I, sitting in prison, surely did not have any access to Freemasons or the Ku Klux Klan. But all of my own early writings cite only scripture and lexicons and ancient historians. And I have always shunned the Gnostics, whom I have never cited, 
And so far as I know, Clifton has always shunned the Gnostics as well, and his writings do not quote any of them in a positive manner. So neither Clifton nor I have ever relied on writings of Freemasons, the Talmud, the Kabbalah, the Zohar, or, or the Gnostics, to assert anything that we say about 2C line. None of it comes from the Talmud. It all comes from the Bible and from the original meanings of words. Bertrand Compare only quoted scripture in his sermons. And so far as I can remember, he never cited any Masonic or Gnostic writings. I read most of his available sermons in early 1998. I also read books by other two seed line teachers, such as Robert Palakias, and neither do they quote the Talmud, the Kabbalah, or works of masonry to prove their points. Both Clifton and I have pointed out the many problems with Wesley Swift, where he often quoted the Zohar, which is a book of the Kabbalah, or spurious works such as the Book of the Bee or the Cave of Treasures. But neither of us have ever followed Swift in any of that nonsense. So Jeffrey Weekly is indeed being disingenuous. Ted Wheeland does the same thing. Ted Wheeland tells his followers that the two seed line comes from the Talmud, and he's full of shit. He's a straight liar. We have never quoted the Talmud. Weekly is being disingenuous and demonstrates his own ignorance of what we actually teach. Now to present Clifton's response to Weekly's argument, which catches Weekly in a quagmire of sorts, Clifton says, Mr. Weekly, we may have another problem. I don't know whether it is true or not, but I have heard that Howard B. Rand was also a Mason, and I tried to verify this and I honestly couldn't. If this is true, why did he teach against the two-seed line doctrine? If this is correct, would this discredit all of Mr. Rand's teachings also, or any other former Mason for that part? This is the old dishonest con artist's trick of guilt by association, plain and simple. And Clifton's argument is valid, whether Rand was a Mason or not. And we must also state that it seems that Weekly may have gotten some of his history on Christian identity from a book titled Fundamentalism by a sociology professor named Rebecca Joyce Frey, who wrote nearly the same account from page 64 under the subtitle Christian Identity. So if Weekly wants to play the guilt by association game, he already condemns himself, even if he obtained his own material independently of Rebecca Frey. So now Clifton continues to address Weekly under the subtitle. Weekly plays his ace card. On page 20, referring to his book, Jeffrey A. Weekly finally plays his ace card and thinks he has won his argument. After going step by step from the KKK to the Talmud, he lays all his cards on the table. This is what he says. Next we find the Kabbalists got their teaching from the Jewish Babylonian Talmud. What evil, however, could be involved here? That of infusing her with sensual lust. Weekly quoting what he finds in the Talmud. What evil, however, could be involved here? That of infusing her with sensual lust. For R. Yohanan stated, 
When the serpent copulated with Eve, he infused her with lust. In the Garden of Eden, according to a tradition, the human species, and and the text is really pretty sort of nonsensical, i.e. the human species, and he's quoting, supposedly, the Babylonian Talmud from the Sansino Press, from Seder Nahashim Yebamoth, paragraph 103b. And continuing to quote weekly, he states, The Babylonian Talmud is the written form of the tradition of the elders, which had been orally taught since the Babylonian captivity, and that would be a lie. This teaching was a perversion of God's law. These traditions were actually a combination of Baal worship, as practiced in Babylon, and the law of God is given to Israel by Moses. Thus we have arrived at the human origin of the satanic seedline doctrine. Babylon, what I find especially fascinating is that most seedliners express unfathomable hostility toward those who call themselves Jews today, and at the same time they adopt the Jewish fables. Titus 1.14, that came out of Babylon. And of course, I would say that Weekly's argument is disingenuous, since not everything found in the Talmud is original to the Jews. And not everything found in the Talmud is a lie. And I do not believe that the tradition of elders, the elders started in Babylon. Yet, you know, there's a lot of proof, historically and scripturally, that the Judeans of the time of Christ, that a great number of them were Edomites and not Judeans at all. And I can conjecture, rather safely I believe, that the Edomites didn't simply drop their traditions because they converted to Judaism. Not at all. When the Edomites were fused into the body politic of the Judeans in the second century BC. And when the Edomites came to the hegemony of Judea and ruled over it and took command of the priesthood from the time of Herod the Great in the first century BC, there is no doubt in my mind that many of the Edomite traditions were actually fused into Judaism in the so-called traditions of the elders. I have no doubt about that. I can't prove it because we don't have a full religious assessment. We only have a sketch given by Josephus of what the various sects believed. So I can't prove it, but I certainly would say that that is, and and safely, that that is very likely what happened that a lot of Edomite traditions were fused into Judaism by the time of Christ. Especially since the Edomites had already been in command of the kingdom under Herod for a good 60-70 years by the time of the ministry of Christ. (laughs) And that won't be in in, in the notes to this podcast because I just thought of it. I've I've known this for a long time, but I just thought of including it in this discussion, I should say. Clifton responds along these same lines concerning the Talmud, and he says, To catch you off guard, Weekly wants you to presume 
that every last statement in the Babylonian Talmud is a 100% total lie. If this were true, even the Jews would repudiate their own Talmudic books. Of course not everything in the Talmud is a lie. Wiggly believe, in fact, the Torah and, and the other writings of the scripture are part of the Talmud. They're incorporated into the Talmud by the Jews. Wiggly believes he has pulled some type of magic string by quoting directly from the Babylonian Talmud. And you will automatically, like a programmed robot, buy his argument. It's similar to the way the Jews use the magic anti-Semite word. Again, it's the old dishonest Jewish con artist trick of guilt by association, plain and simple. And Weekly is playing it to the hilt of his sword. My advice is, don't ever stay at a motel overnight in Salem, Massachusetts, or you might be accused of being a witch. And under the subtitle, Another Witness, Clifton continues. And he says, one of the very first things, the anti-seedliners, who are opposed to a literal Satan-spawned genetic physical seedline do, is point out the fact that the information can be found in the Babylonian Talmud. Jeffrey A. Weekly is no exception as quoted above. This is a sneaky, deceptive, and dishonest method used by many to declare guilt by association. The question must be asked, is every single word in the Talmud false? This idea is built on the assumption that if it is found in the Babylonian Talmud, it is automatically evil. For anyone who uses this approach, I would challenge them to prove that every single word in the Babylonian Talmud is false. It cannot be done, even though it is a collection of the most evil writings ever put together. Only a weak mind would accept such a totally flimsy premise. Not only is there evidence found in the Talmud substantiating the seduction of Eve, but evidence can be found in the lost books of the Bible and the forgotten books of Eden, the Protevangelion, chapter 10. And this is actually an early Christian apocryphal work. If you accept it as valid scripture or not, is really immaterial. And this is only one of many early scriptural references, apocryphal references, that show that early Christians, the other one is, another one is four Maccabees, another one is found in the secrets of Enoch, that show that early Christians did believe that Eve was sexually seduced. And this passage in the Protevangelion attributed to James, whether you accept it as, as valid scripture or not doesn't matter, does show that early Christians of the first century AD did believe, or the second century perhaps, because that's the latest this document can be placed, did understand that Eve was sexually seduced. And we will read it as Clifton quotes it here. And when her sixth month was come, Joseph returned from his building houses abroad, which was his trade, and entering into the house found the virgin grown big. Then, smiling upon his face, said, With what face can I look up to the Lord my God? Or shall I say concerning this young woman? For I received her a virgin out of the temple of the Lord my God, and have not preserved her such. Who has thus deceived me? 
Who has committed this evil in my house, and seducing the virgin from me has defiled her? Is not the history of Adam exactly accomplished in me? For in the very instant of his glory, the serpent came and found Eve alone and seduced her. Just after the same manner it has happened to me. Then Joseph, arising from the ground, called her and said, O thou who hast been much favored by God, why hast thou done this? Why hast thou debased thus thy soul? Who was educated in the Holy of Holies, and received food from the hand of the angels? But she said with the flood of tears, But she with the flood of tears replied, I am innocent, and have known no man. And if you want to accept that as canonical scripture or not, doesn't matter. It's a 1st or 2nd century Christian document that fully indicates that what happened to Joseph with the impregnation of Mary by the Holy Spirit was similar to what happened to Adam with the impregnation of Eve by the serpent. Clifton says, If you will remember, Jeffrey A. Weekly made this statement on page 14. The origin of the false teaching. If, quoting Weekly, if, as I contend, the satanic seedline doctrine, as taught by the seedliners, is not found in the scriptures, and since it was not taught by any of the early church fathers as being correct, how did it find its way into the Christian belief system known as identity? And Clifton says, as he seemed to have such a high regard of his own ability to research, and was so critical of the two seedliners to do so, let's see whether or not the early church fathers understood anything concerning this doctrine. For this we will use part of an article from the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible, volume E through J, pages 799 to 800, and it Clifton's citation from the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible states, Under James, Protevangelium of, the earliest of the infancy gospels recounting the birth, childhood, adolescence, token marriage, supernatural pregnancy, and delivery of Mary. Together with the Gospel of Thomas, it was the chief source of several other infancy gospels. Its original title appears to have been History of James Concerning the Birth of Mary. And that doesn't mean that the Protevangelium of James and the Gospel of Thomas had the same origin. It only means that they were both um, early sources of the early infancy Gospels, which I don't accept as canonical, but which are important to understand what was going through the minds of both early Christians and those who sought to subvert Christianity at an early time. It was the chief source of several other infancy Gospels. Its original title appears to have been History of James Concerning the Birth of Mary, meaning Mary's birth of Christ, the birthing of Mary, I would have said. Origen refers to it as the Book of James. It was first styled Protevangelium, or Proto-Gospel, of James by its 16th century discoverer, Guillaume Postel, meaning that Postel must have discovered this 
old manuscript in the 16th century. The earliest certain reference to this writing is by Origen, who cites it as the source of the tradition that Jesus' brothers were sons of Joseph by a former wife, whom he had married before Mary. Now I, James, who wrote this history in Jerusalem, when there arose a tumult when Herod died, withdrew myself into the wilderness until the tumult ceased in Jerusalem, glorifying the Lord God who gave me the gift and wisdom to write this history. Now I cannot agree that the brethren of Christ were from Joseph, as James the brother of Christ was called the son of Alphaeus in scripture. And I am therefore persuaded that instead Mary had a second husband after the death of Joseph, who was much older than she was. Of course, that would be a heresy to the Catholics. And in many, in many respects, Origen was certainly a proto-Catholic. Continuing with Clifton, Clifton says, As you can plainly see, the early church fathers were very much acquainted with the Protoevangelium. Clifton, what Clifton is doing here is looking for looking for information in the early church fathers, the writings of the early church fathers, that they had some awareness of the two-seed line interpretation of Genesis chapter 3. And he is pointing out that if Origen knew about the existence of the Protoevangelium of James, which the interpreter's dictionary of the Bible certainly says that he does, and demonstrates that he does, that Origen must have known something about two seed line teachings independently of the Talmud. That's the important point here. Independently of the Talmud. And the Protoevangelium of James is not a Talmudic source. It is a Christian source with all of its faults. It's still a Christian source. However, we have already demonstrated, and it was some years researching this in order to find the um, citations which I did, and and that's, I think Clifton first found the citations in Justin Martyr, if I'm not mistaken, and I think that I found the citation in Tertullian in his Apology when I read that document, and I have the book here on the shelf, when I read that document while I was in prison in maybe 2005, 2006, I don't remember the exact date. Although my books are dated and I could open a book and it'll tell me. But that's not important. What I'm trying to say is that the works of the early Christian writers are quite voluminous. That they count. When you take Tertullian and Origen and Clement of Rome and Clement of Alexandria and Irenaeus and all of these, Justin Martyr, and, and put them into, a, um, in, into books, it's like a set of encyclopedias. In fact, you could buy them as a set of encyclopedias, the anti-Nicene Fathers. You could buy them at probably on Amazon.com right now. And it's 20 or 30 really fat books. So even though we also have copies in software, it takes a long time to research these things. And we have found these citations in Justin Martyr and in Tertullian and in Origen and other early writers since Clifton wrote this special notice to all who do deny 2C line part 4. 
At this time, Clifton had located this Protevangelium of James and the information he needed to show that Origen did know about it, which establishes that there were teachings very similar to what we teach in 2C line that were not Talmudic in origin. So that's the basis, the premise of Clifton's argument here. And it's a valid argument, except that today, with all of the subsequent research and reading we've done, we have a much more complete argument that refutes weakly entirely. Clifton says, I believe, Mr. Jeffrey A. Weekly, that Origen was indeed an early church father and that he understood the physical seduction of Eve by Satan as described in the quotation from the Protevangelium of James. Weekly uses some very underhanded tactics in his unwarranted and groundless argument trying to prove the two C-liners in error. We will look at one of them now. On page 21 of his Satanic Seedline its doctrine and history, he tries his best, or maybe his worst, to mislead his readers. He tries in vain to convince them that the seedliners are mistaken by quoting from Matthew Henry's commentary. In doing this, he does not name the volume or the page, as he so faithfully did with his other quotations. It is glaringly apparent He didn't want anyone to go to Matthew Henry and check him on this one. All he said was, quote, The best explanation for this is found in Matthew Henry's commentary. Close quote. After searching for some time, it was found that he was quoting from page 29 in volume 1, concerning Henry's comments on Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. And this is what he quoted. Observe here. The serpent and a woman had just now been very familiar and friendly in discourse about the forbidden fruit, and a wonderful agreement there was between them, but here they are irreconcilably set at variance. Note, sinful sinful friendships justly end in mortal feuds. Those that unite in wickedness will not unite long. And Clifton says, Weekly deliberately omitted Matthew Henry's remark just three paragraphs later on the next page, page 30, hoping you would never find where Matthew Henry says the following, quote, A perpetual quarrel is here commenced between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil among men. War is proclaimed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So the seed of the serpent must be a kingdom of the devil among men. Clifton ends his paper on that note, fully elucidating the fact that Matthew Henry understood two seed line to at least some degree. I was not going to cite origin from my own presentation, which I had cited earlier here, called Early Two Seed Line. But since Clifton mentioned him here, I will. This is because while Origen was also drifting off into universalism and had what we may consider some theological problems, he too was acquainted with certain racial truths which we teach in 2C line. So this is what we said in that presentation, early 2C line, concerning Origen. 
In a letter from Arjun to Africanus about the history of Susanna, in Part 9, Arjun insisted that the story of Susanna was removed from the scriptures, but he did not attribute the removal properly. Arjun said, Wherefore I think no other supposition is possible than that they who had the reputation of wisdom and the rulers and elders took away from the people every passage which might bring them into discredit among the people. We need not wonder then if this history of the evil device of the licentious elders against Susanna is true, but was concealed and removed from the scriptures by men themselves not very far removed from the council of these elders. Now, I would say that if we read Susanna, Daniel himself attributed the behavior of the rabbis to the fact that they are the seed of Canaan and not of Judah, who were posing as men of Judah. We would assert that for this reason, the story of Susanna was oppressed by early Jews, who were indeed the seed of Canaan themselves, as the histories of Josephus and the New Testament attest. Origen seems confused as to the nature of demons, where sometimes he seems to admit that they are human. We have already seen here that Justin Martyr certainly upheld that demons could be human. In Volume 4 of the Antinicene Fathers, in Origen's Against Celsus, at the very end of Book 7, he says that demons are scattered, as it were, in troops in different parts of the earth. Then in Book 3, Chapter 32 of Against Celsus, he says, We have to answer that probably certain wicked demons contrived that such statements should be committed to writing. Origen was talking about embodied demons, demons scattered in troops around certain parts of the earth. I would call them Negroes and Chinamen and Japs and Indians and probably some Mongolians and some Aborigines and some South American squat monsters, perhaps, aside from the Jews. But perhaps I'm over-interpreting. I'm making a quip, right? Origen was talking about embodied demons, and that is also what we teach in 2C line, which the apostles themselves had also certainly taught. When John talks about spirits not from God, he's talking about embodied spirits, and they're demons. He's not talking about disembodied spirits. These demons, scattered in troops in different parts of the earth, are actual tribes of people who are here with us to this very day, just as Tertullian and Justin Martyr had also professed. If one early church father wrote these things, then Geoffrey Weekly is a liar. And now, here alone, we have produced three who stand as witnesses against him. The early church fathers were not perfect, as Christianity was already infiltrated, corrupted, and suppressed in the persecutions. But some of them certainly did teach some of the significant elements of 2C line. This concludes part 4 of this presentation of Clifton's papers. As the series progresses, Clifton will show many other scriptures, both apocryphal and canonical, which fully support our positions 
and which fully discredit naysayers such as Ted Wieland and Jeffrey A. Weekly. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.